Well, thank you. Adrian, what city are you in? I'm in Ottawa. I just landed here last night. We were in Halifax um, at Magnetic North. Oh, how was it? It was really fun. It was our first um, conference with Little One. Okay. Uh, in tow. So I don't know that we're going to do that again. <laughs> it's it's complicated. I mean, it's hard enough to c- kind of hit all of the events. Yeah. But it's complicated by nap time. Before we go too deep, I just want to say that this is the Spider Web Show. Oh, I mean, <laughs> SW, the SWS podcast. <laughs> Whoops! Which stands for Spider Web Show, but also Small Wooden Shoe, which is the fantastic company of Jacob Zimmer, who's also here. And our guest is Annabelle Sutar, and we're so excited! Thank you for having oh. me. Yes, so Annabelle, this is uh, we we have people we we talk about various things, including mostly our theater lives, but also our lives lives, um, because those are related. Shockingly, relevant um, for the the piece I'm working on right now, but I'll talk about that later. Cool. Um, so. Uh, so Annabelle, I I don't know you at all. I don't. Have we ever actually met? I'm. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, so. Where Where do you live? I Jake? live in Toronto mostly. Okay. Um, uh, and I, I live in Montreal. Yeah. Uh, so what? You are mostly a playwright. Is that? I am. Yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, I it's It's funny when I, when I was at university, I was more interested in directing, but I was heavily influenced by two, uh, well, theater practitioners. Um, and I kind of learned about them through their writing. So one was a documentary playwright named Emily Mann, um, whose play execution of justice was the, uh, basically the first big treatment, as far as I know of the Harvey milk story that became the, the milk, the, the, the movie milk, uh, starring Sean Penn mm-hmm. about the execution of, um, assassination of a San Francisco mayor, Harvey milk by a policeman named, or by a councilman called mm-hmm. Dan White. Uh, she made a documentary play into that. And I believe it even went to Broadway at some point. Um, and she was my playwriting teacher at Princeton University. And she was also the artistic director of the regional theater in the town of Princeton called the McCarter Theater. And uh, I took a class with her and discovered this form of playwriting that really appealed to me. I, I think at that point I, I never thought I would make a career in theater. I was very interested in, in uh, current events, journalism, uh, history, politics. And uh, this just seemed to be an amazing way to um, create a platform for people to different people to listen to each other uh, in the event of a serious social crisis. Um, I also uh, got to know the work of Anna Devere Smith at the time, who's an African-American playwright and actress who at the time was premiering some of her first documentaries in the States. Uh, so it was kind of through these two women that I discovered this form of storytelling. And when I returned to Quebec in 1996, uh, I discovered that no one else really was was doing it. So I just started to practice this, uh, this form of writing and uh, founded my own theater company around my work, basically just because I knew no one else would produce it unless I, unless I did. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so even though I had taken maybe more directing classes when I was at university and was more interested in that, I think it was through discovering this particular form of writing uh, that I've now pr- predominantly um, focused on writing. And here you are. And here I am, really. It's, you know, uh, whatever it is, 15 years later, um, still still doing it. Uh, just 15 years and how many plays, Annabelle? Uh, just out of curiosity. No. Not, not that anyone's, like, competing or anything. <laughs> uh, I'm now working, I guess, The Watershed, which is my current play, is my eighth or ninth. Um yeah, I, I think it's the eighth. I mean, Seeds kind of went through two uh, manifestations um, in a way. Uh, but, yeah, I, th- I think this is my eighth. <laughs> uh, so, you know, each one takes uh, takes about 18 months to two years to research and, and write. Well, not all of them have taken that long, actually. Some of them have been shorter, shorter ones. Um, and, uh, you know, and then... With the last two plays, we put them through pretty pretty serious workshop phases as well, just to to find the staging and to uh, refine the script in rehearsal. So and one other reason. Oh, sorry, Jacob. Do you have a question? Go ahead. Nope. Go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, one of the reasons we wanted to talk with you, Annabelle, is actually came out of a question of Jacob. So maybe I'm just segueing into your question, Jacob, um, about. Uh, the ethics and responsibilities of using real people, either as sources or, or in some cases, um, maybe not in your work, but in other other work that I've seen, as uh, performers on stage, and real people. I know that you know theater people are also real people, but what I mean <laughs> are like the, the untrained. Uh, folks or the folks who are connected to the events that we're talking about or the stories we're talking about. Uh, and of course, your name came up right away as somebody who maybe has grappled with that in, in the course of writing these eight different plays over 15 years. Yes, uh, grapples with it many times. Uh, of course, when you first approach someone to say, I'm writing a documentary play and will you agree to do an interview? Um, I think 95% of them have no idea really how exactly you're going to be using their words. They haven't ever seen a documentary play or been approached um, to to be the, the subject of a documentary play. Uh, they, they might have seen a film, a uh, documentary film, but I because I go into my interviews with no camera, they kind of are confused as to how they're going to how <laughs> they use the footage. I only ever enter with a small digital sound recorder. From time to time I'll take a still photo just as a reference for the actor uh, and I certainly take notes about gestures uh, that I record, uh, you know, bo- body language or, or whatnot. But uh, but most of them are, are sort of going into it uh, very sort of ignorant of how that is going to be used. I, I always explain it uh, very carefully on the record while the tape recorder is going that, you know, I, I'll be recording this, we will be using these words verbatim in the final um, iteration of the script if I choose to use this material and it will be word for word. It will not be, uh, you know, I'm not writing a script that's based on what you're telling me, but actually uh, I'll be using the verbatim language you give me and an actor will be interpreting this language on the stage. Um, That 
still often <laughs> doesn't sink in until the person, if the person uh, finally comes back to see the play. And then I think it really sinks in once they're sitting in the audience and realize that, uh, that, that they are actually up there. And that often if they're sitting with someone in the audience who knows them, they're kind of uh, told by their friends, wow, that really, even though it might not look like you and exactly sound like your voice, it's incredible how when you when you record someone's language and then play it back word for word through an actor, how much it resembles them because people's spirit is in their language. That's like their fingerprints. They the 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 choice of word, um, the uh, the repetition of certain words they'll use, the um, the rhythm of their speaking. This all comes through through the text, and so. Uh, I think, you know, some of the reaction we've got is, wow, that really, even though you had a woman playing my husband up on the stage, you really got the spirit of my husband. You know, we've had that reaction. We've had some very difficult reaction. Uh, we've we've had some uh, family members of characters come and see our shows and say, you know, uh, you performed my husband, my father, my brother, whatever. Uh, with much too much drama, you know, he's actually very soft-spoken or he doesn't wear suspenders or, you know, little details that um, people are looking for to recognize the people that they know uh, or themselves that don't come across. Uh, and then sometimes with the actual character, we've had people come and see the play and because of the choice of, um, of sort of the, the part of the interview that we used in relationship to other interview footage we've used from other characters, they have been upset by their characterization. They they've felt that they have been um, uh, oversimplified or or <clears throat> manipulated to to present one point of view in the in the play, whereas they felt they presented a more holistic um, impression of the the conflict at hand. So. We've we've really like run the gamut in terms of reaction to uh, to the material, but you know, getting back to what you know you were asking about in your original question, it's a huge ethical responsibility when you approach people and when you use their their language on the stage. Often, we're dealing with very controversial topics, where people we're finding people in a moment of deep personal or social conflict, and um, they've spoken to us. Um, well, not in confidence because they know that we're using the material for a documentary, but we found them at a very delicate time, and they're 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 being very um, they're they're confiding in uh, to us, and they are trusting us with the, mm -hmm. using their words, and then we have to be so darn careful about uh, the respect that we that we pay them in both the choice of the language we use and how that material is expressed on the stage. Um, and so that's the director's responsibility, it's the designer's responsibility, it's the actor's responsibility. But it's really at the end of the day as a sort of as an executive producer of this material, it's my responsibility to make sure that what we have up there uh, is, is defending these characters and not judging them. Mm -hmm. And have you ever, uh, just a question occurred did you have you ever run material by like been on the edge of that and felt like oh we should check in with uh, with people i've i have once had that feeling that we should do it and i didn't and then i regretted it because mm -hmm. we actually um upset someone um 
It was uh, a play that I wrote called Sexy Beton, which is about the collapse of an overpass in Laval in 2006. Uh, and a few of the characters in that um, play were actual victims of the overpass collapse, the ones who survived the, the collapse or who had family members die in the collapse. So in this case, we're dealing, of course, with very, very sensitive material. Um, the, uh, the final scene in the play was a very touching um, phone conversation between me and one of the victims in which um, she sort of apologized for not um, moving ahead with a lawsuit um, that the group was thinking of doing. And she was basically saying how disappointed she was in herself for, for not having the courage to face, you know, the um, just, just to, to go through with a lawsuit. Um, and, uh, the director asked to listen to the recording of that. And she said, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if after the whole, you know, two and a half hours of this play, we see this woman who's being portrayed by an actress on stage. If we heard the actual voice in the dying moments of the play to remind our audience that this is, these are real people. This is a real event. Like just to really bring them back to the actual event. And uh, we thought, like, collectively as this as a kind of homage to this character because she was so important and so inspiring and her struggle really, you know, symbolized the whole struggle we were trying to um, portray through the play. And uh, it's also in a moment where the actress is at her wit's end and she kind of breaks down emotionally. So we thought, okay, well, let's, if the actress is breaking down, it's almost like a relay. It's like we, she, she can't speak. And so we let the character speak for herself. So we were so excited about this sort of artistic decision. And we were actually so excited to share it with the character because we thought, well, what better way to give the play back to her and to empower her and to, to remind everyone that it's her voice. We did not ask her permission. And, mm -hmm. um, she she actually didn't end up coming to see it that night, but her husband did and reported back to her. And she was she still won't talk to me to this day. She feels that I betrayed her trust. That um, that she you know she felt that this was um, you know even even though it it would have been pretty much the same thing to perform those actual words by the actress because it's like literally verbatim. Uh, and we all know it's her, we're using her name and she has been, she has made herself public. For some reason we crossed a line with her and, and I guess it was just the fact that we didn't ask her permission to use her actual voice. Uh, so that was just, uh, you know, one example of how, you know, you, you talk, you just, you know, made a little uh, joke uh, a few moments ago about, well, actors are real people too. It's true. We're real people, but we get kind of caught up in our little artistic, artificial, you know, black box, uh, mm -hmm. where we, we sometimes in our attempt to connect with the world, um, we actually lose touch with the world because we, uh, we start to think that the, what were the shadows that we're performing in, in that box are, are now reality. Um, and then we forget, uh, sometimes and how ironic that I would forget in that moment, because here I am working <laughs> with actual people and their words and their voices. Um, and yet I got so excited by an artistic concept that I kind of forgot some of the, um, I, well, the contract that I had with these people. Mm -hmm. Um, so 
you know, I, I have to continue to be careful about that. Um, you know, the, the play I'm working on now has a bunch of sensitive material and, um, I just have to be careful about getting people's permission and about protecting people's anonymity if that's what they want. And just keeping, keeping those people who actually provide me with my, with my material, uh, keeping them present in the process, in the creation process. I, I can imagine also as as theater makers, or this is kind of my experience, even though we're in the business of feeling things, that by feeling things so frequently and so deeply that we forget that not everybody feels comfortable feeling in public. Right. Um, totally. And and that it is uh, for some for some folks, it's. I mean, for most theater students in first year, it's something that needs to be overcome. You know, like that feelings are our personal intimate moment yeah. uh, that need to be played out in safety. I would imagine, though, Annabelle, when you you come in with your recorder and, and you um, verbalize the contract, that in some ways, though, you also want your um, interview subject or your the, the person you're having conversation with to forget that the recorder is there. Yes, um, for sure. That's part of it. It's part of my interview style to keep uh, the interview more of a conversation and to, um, to, to make them feel that we're sort of alone in the room. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's the difference between, you know, going in just with a little sound recorder and going in with a camera crew is that ultimately, uh, the person can be themselves and they can speak, um, from that point of conflict that they're experiencing and then their language will uh, express that conflict in a poetic way. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time I do get there because what we're talking about is something of deep personal interest um, to the to the person I'm interviewing and they become um, animated in attempting to, um, to, to uh, express their point of view to me. Uh, they're also aware that I might have spoken with people who are on the other side of that issue. So, for example, with my play Seeds, when I was really looking at a very clear-cut legal battle between a farmer and a biotech company, so much of the language that would come out, for example, when I interviewed the farmer, was a defense against the accusations of the company. And then when I spoke to people at the company, it was, you know, uh, we know what he's been telling you. Now here's our side of the story. And so you really do get the feeling of the presence of the adversary in the room and the, this, this deep feeling of, of conflict. And in a way, in that context, the, uh, the recorder kind of gets forgotten. And mm-hmm. I don't think people say things that they wouldn't want to say on 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 tape, but I think they say things that they wouldn't say on television, for example. <laughs> right. <laughs> they had a camera. It's, and um, they are candid. And, and really, like, this is, this is something I'm searching for because when I look at the mainstream media or if I go to a press conference or if I see a politician make a speech, I say, God, where has our candid dialogue gone? Like, where, when are people going to come out from behind that, that bunker wall and actually say something that they that they feel and that they believe. Um, there's so much manufactured uh, artificial language. We all know it. I mean, it's even kind of a joke. You know, if you watch like Evan Solomon's show, what's it called? Um, not the house. The uh, 
power and politics. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he asks a question. Sometimes he has to ask it five times and the person keeps evading. And he's just sitting there with a little smirk on his face going, we all know this person's not answering the question, but there's nothing we can do about it. <laughs> and it's just to kind of become a convention now that uh, people cannot say what's on their minds because it's going to lose them votes or it's going to lose them sales or it's going to lose their their particular audience that they're trying to cultivate. Mm-hmm. And the, the big question in all this is where's the truth? So it's true. I, I think by working in theater, which is a kind of a under the radar uh, medium and, you know, not using a camera and, and really just trying to engage people in, in a conversation, I'm hoping to kind of... Uh, bushwhack through all that nonsense and and get to something that's coming a little bit closer to to the heart. But you know, of course, I, I still you know ninety ninety nine point nine percent of the stuff I collect doesn't make it to the stage. It's that point one percent that uh, that really speaks from uh, from a, a deeper place that uh, that makes it up there. I was just thinking that the place where the truth kind of comes out these days seems to be Twitter. <laughs> you know, the people who, uh, and it's all, it seems to frequently be um, professional athletes who impulse tweet some offensive thing, right? And that's where suddenly you have um, all of those, the communication coaches who tell them what to say and how to say it are catching up <laughs> or have to catch up because somebody feels safe. Or yes. that, or personal, or, or intimate with, with their device, and then, you know, you get a uh, one new cycle of apologies. Right, it's true. It's, you know, and you have to get these big Twitter storms. Um, you know, you get it, and then you also get it in those anonymous comment sections after a newspaper article is written. Yeah. You know, that's what you know allows you to to see that. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's being felt out there and there's a lot of frustration about being misunderstood and there's a lot of resentment about uh, the truth not getting out because people do, as you say, blurt things out suddenly. Um, And yet, you know, because we don't have, I think, a lot of space for that, it comes out in a kind of more violent way. Uh, There's a lot of racism and... um, uh, anger and, uh, and, uh, and, and hurt, quite frankly, being expressed in those more anonymous places or just suddenly on Twitter. And it, uh, it suggests the, the, the deep frustration at the way that we're communicating today. So, um, but you know, all that, all that material, um, is, is also that that's, that's stuff that I collect for my plays. So not just interviews, but I'll go on comment sections or I'll grab stuff from Twitter because it's all public domain at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'll throw it into the play and it's another manifestation of, uh, of people's, you know, what, what people are thinking and feeling all just for the mill. Yeah. I wonder, um, Jacob, because this question came from you originally, I wonder if there's something that you're working on right now that, that you actually are having ethical questions about. I mean, I, so, it came so up. like we might as well talk about it. Yes, it, it opens Tuesday, <laughs> uh, Wednesday, um, and and we're still working on it. Um, Exciting. Yeah, so it's uh, it's a the summer spectacular is is the fringe show that that we're doing in a in a park in Toronto, and it's 
uh, quite intentionally sort of mythologizing a bunch of stories. And, and it started with um, Daedalus and Icarus as a story and Robert Oppenheimer and, um, and Aaron Swartz. And it was really Swartz that the issue was about. And so he's a, was a, a computer programmer and an activist and... Uh, and he killed himself almost two years ago now oh, at 26. And and I knew that I wanted, like, I, you know, partially I had this art thing of, of and, and in, like, I'm, I'm interested in, and ongoingly curious about the many of the things that, that Aaron was. And, and had this sort of artistic interest in in not quite not so much mapping him to Icarus, but of of using of telling using his story using his story. I'm not like it, it, this. This is all the language, right? This is the the clarity between the difference between using his story and telling it. I'm not. We're not in any way the verbatim. We're ending up quoting him, yes. But we're super because the show is structured like a. Um, a walking tour we can like say and then in 1992 know, Aaron said this um, like we had and, and he's he was super public about you know at, at at 17 which is sort of midway through his internet career he you know he had posted something saying like when I die I like all of my hard drives should be made public I want everything, like, I want everything online. Um, I don't, you know, I don't think he was anticipating it happening so soon. Um, but so I knew I wanted to talk about his story. Uh, and I knew that, and basically I'm like, one degree of separation from people who cared very deeply for him and loved him and were in at various times romantic relationships with him sort of through you know a friend of a friend was his girlfriend and is has written extensively about him and and so i was so i i wanted to check in with him and it was it was a case where even more, I think, than if he had been alive, and because then he could answer, in some ways. Uh, but that that because he wasn't alive, and yet I felt like, oh, I know people who. This is not a theoretical conversation about a theoretical person who, who, took their own life. It's somebody who. People know, and. And so I just, I wanted in myself to be clear about how I was approaching that. And also knowing that we weren't uh, in the work that we're doing, you know, I'm, I'm intentionally much less of a completist than, than almost it sounds like you are, Annabelle. Like I, we are, you know, we are passing through these stories very quickly. We are not experts. We do a certain kind of a lot of research, but it's actually quite quick. Um, we as performers put ourselves in the position of non-experts trying to make our way through stories. 
and that and so so the stories are always incomplete and and that's always part of it and we and and we so put that in the front that that this is just us trying to figure out our way through um, so it's it feels uh accessible for your audience yeah and it and it to me it feels more honest like i i don't know i can't know anything about aaron actually i didn't know him i can only talk about his image at a certain level and that's an image that he had a huge amount of work in creating because he was so public in his life in terms of blogging and um speaking like he's he has been in the public he you know in the internet version of the public sphere since he was 13 like he's um and today in fact uh, as we record this is the day that the the a documentary about him the internet's own boy is is been you can download it uh from vimeo and and it may be in your local theater depending if you have a documentary theater locally um so there's there's a lot you know there's a lot of stuff about him and there was a massive you know it has has instigated a a bunch of activism and he was a he was a major activist so there's he's super public and yet i knew that you know that that's not true for everyone that he was also super private like any of us are and and so i was wanting to be clear in my thinking and and you know i had a a long skype conversation with tim my friend who who knows quinn and and talking about it and in part talking about it became oddly like what are my ethics around icarus and and that mapping like was i aaron has already been so mythologized that was taking part in further mythologization and especially if that mythologization was going to be towards like the more traditional story of Icarus that that people think about like oh don't 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 fly too close to the sun like stay in your place young man um, but but then Icarus is too proud is too arrogant and flies close to the sun uh, and that's not in fact the story that that sort of naturally conservative intensely conservative moral of that story is was not what i'm interested in the, you know, the, and we say it in the show the sort of the question we are more interested in is why was an inventor and his adolescent son trapped on an island with no way to escape except to try to invent flight out of candle wax and pigeon feathers. Uh, that, that perhaps if we ask that question, uh, yeah. then framing a, a bit of youthful indiscretion, right? And, the, and at some levels that, that we've moved away from it a bit, but that narratively, but it's one of the forming questions is, is that youthful indiscretion shouldn't result in people dying. No. What's the context that gives rise to that? Pardon? What's yeah, what's the context? There, there are contexts. And, yeah. Yeah. and in the Daedalus and Icarus story, we don't... That's not talked about, you know, that. No. Like the King Minos, the Crete, all of the sort of 
history of Daedalus that leads him to a place where he's like, oh, I need to invent wings, yeah. um, and all I have is wax. Uh, that's not talked about, and so this, and and so that, so that in fact became the thing of just of, of us wanting to be very careful about framing that. And framing, and so the narrative of the story yeah. has ended up being like people are in relationship to giant systems, and those systems are also people who make choices, right? That. Yeah. Well, and also that it's very hard to reframe a myth. You know, yeah. it's uh, people go in thinking they, their whole way of thinking is uh, is the framework. <laughs> it's not just what they think; it's the it's the way in which they think, and. Uh, it's 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 hard to uh, just to start to question or dismantle that. So you're you're even taking a risk by using the uh, the myth, the Icarus myth, right? Because uh, you have to ask people to reconsider even that myth in them reconsidering how they look at this. Uh, also, the, um, Aaron Schwartz, right? Yeah, and so that's been the the real the real challenge and figure out in rehearsal and i mean and the truth is we mostly talk about daedalus like icarus isn't even a character okay. because it it the myth that we're interested in is the context right that that so much of my work is is around trying to to make talking about big the big picture into something that's that every like that that all of us regular people can do and should do and also can do with a sense of humor and a sense of playfulness um and and so all of that like you know that's all that's all true and then and then also like there are people who who if if upon hearing that there's a production that is just cavalierly using their friend i can imagine that not being fun right. and so i wanted so i was just i was thinking about it more and and there's something about the proximity of it right proximity both to myself as knowing the knowing people who know him but also in time like i don't it's just happened yeah, yeah i don't feel like i i like i didn't feel like I needed to track down somebody who knew Robert Oppenheimer and talk about him. Mm-hmm. Although arguably I, you know, I might have, um, <laughs> you know, so he's also a... been improperly mythologized tons yeah. by people on all sides of the question. Can I, can I, uh, jump in Jacob? I'm just curious. Um, you, you refer to a couple conversations that you have, but can you, um, go through again for those of us who maybe are not well slept um the (laughs) the permissions or or you know like did you seek permission from friends or family from his friends or family like do did you feel any um uh responsibility to to reach out to those folks and and just to can you i know that you talked a little bit about it but Mm -hmm. um i didn't in the end like i talked to my friend tim uh, Mally, who's a writer and and previous small wooden shoe collaborator, and and talk things through with him, and it and it also it didn't quite feel like it, you know, partially that there's so much written about Aaron, and and he was so sort of explicit about 
his own publicness, uh, that that sort of that permission and the permission wasn't the question. It was about trying to make intent clear. And so the thing that I ended up doing is there's a blog post that at least sort of mind maps out my thinking around it and my desires and intent. Uh, the thing that both Tim and I, I think were worried about on some levels were, were the, was like the internet getting a hold of it in the wrong way. Like Twitter getting a hold of decontextualizing my attempt to do this contextualization okay and then my second question is um about how you're promoting the show so we mostly like we include that it's we certainly are never calling it the air like it's called the summer spectacular I, my biggest fear is that people are just gonna like the the name quite intentionally left content out partially we didn't know content <laughs> it's, it's a new show it's yeah um, i'm I am uncertain about much of the content, you know, six days out from an audience. Mm -hmm. And that's just how we work. Uh, but I am not certainly doing like, this is the Aaron Swartz story. And but that, it's but it's that, in your promotional material. But it's in the promotional material that like he is one of the stories that we, and but we also do like we tour, like we talk about touring the mythologies of yeah. Daedalus and Icarus and Aaron Swartz. So it's, it's, what we're doing is in fact, like, I'm not, I can't tell you, like, again, I can't tell you anything about him, but I can talk about how the mythology of him affects me and how I think it's part of the world. And the I'm, actors can do the same, right? And the actors have their, are performing in their own voices. Yeah. And some of them are way more interested in certain parts. And so audience members who are with those people will get like, you will get a different show depending on which actor yeah. is leading your tour because they're, they're, because they're also autonomous in uh, to a degree in what, in what they're telling. And so, you know, so not right now, like right now, the biggest question for me, like we have a, how do you describe his suicide? Like how it seems really harsh when we say things like, and then he was found hanging from his, from his belt in his room but it's also yeah there's def yeah i know but there's also like um violence doesn't have to be portrayed to be violent mm -hmm. do you know what i mean yep uh and and also one in ten the statistic is one in ten people have committed suicide or not committed the attempted right suicide or had suicidal thoughts and and likely that many or more have been touched by somebody who's um, either succeeded or attempted suicide. So that's where I would be s sensitive around suicide. Right. Having just gotten back from Magnetic North and seen Huff where he starts with the bag over his head. Oh, yep. spoiler alert. Um, the, I, I think it's in like promotional pictures. Okay, so good. But the reason, I mean, I just want to step back to my question because the reason I was asking about promotional material is because... Um, Oh, I just saw a bird go by with a twig for a nest. That's just so amazing. Um, is because I think it was in Toronto, actually, at YPT, although I could be wrong. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, that there was a show that was, in quote-unquote, inspired by the story of this young person who 
was a victim of violence. The show itself and the creation of the show moved on from that story. Um, but in the promotional material, it mentioned this person. So regardless of whether that person would or would not object to being a point of departure, it's the families who um, are the ones who may or may not object. So that was this, a similar experience with um, Jamie Long's piece, Clark and I, somewhere in Connecticut, where he found a trash or a suitcase full of old uh, photo albums and created a show out of it. And kind of in the background was always looking for the family who's was portrayed in this. And um, when he did find them, that they, the, the the people who owned the photo albums had passed on, but their their family members were very possessive about the image and possessive about the story, and disturbed by the notion that I mean, he, Jamie made everything up because all he's working on are images, not and even any names or language except for Clark, I think. Um, and and we're actually threatening to sue them until they figured out that it was theater, not film, and that there was really nothing to sue for um, in he, terms of... He used the images. In the he used the images, and actually, I think if you see the show, you'll see that he's, he's actually swapped out images, so he does that thing where he presents images as being part of this photo album collection, but then he tells you that they are actually his own family. But he, but the, um, but the the, so he did the little swaparoo. But the the show up until that point had been created with those images, and I think he uses some of the images because there's some of pets and that sort of thing, or some that are don't portray people. So on the ones that are anonymous, he, um, I'd have to, we'd have to get him on the line to find out the exact details. So but that's I think where that's I, right, Adrian. I think it's it's that. He, that it's the families of people who are left behind mm -hmm. who have the unresolved issues. So even if if this man was conscious and and um, explicit in his comfort with being public in the, that these writings are public domain, um, it's you, especially in the wake of tragedy, you don't know how other people. I mean, I'm sorry to be the downer, downer Debbie, but that that's where I would be worried is that somebody's got somebody's got a Google alert on their thing and goes like, wait, who's this? What's this? A show? Yeah, that's sort of uh, bringing all of this material back out when it's they're already dealing with a major um, sort of media storm around it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I guess I mean one of yeah, absolutely, and that was certainly was certainly the thing that I was was wanting to be mindful of and and wanting to make sure that it was explicit that we were being mindful of it, that we weren't claiming to represent his yeah. life or him or to, you know, I, I, it's an interesting difference in terms of Annabelle, what I, like, because my work is we always perform, we mostly perform largely as ourselves and then, and then take on source material. We're never playing somebody. We're never claiming to perform that person. Perform that person. Yeah. 
Uh, and yeah. that and that distinction has always been fairly like that with with this. I mean, it's never come up before for me where where there was a potential of playing a real person. Yeah. And but within within my aesthetic and my curiosities, it doesn't match anyways. It's kind of it's something that I have um, been addressing, starting with seeds and now more with my current play, The Watershed, is just making my the character of the playwright more present on the stage so that I'm kind of exposing myself and my biases and my prejudices and my weaknesses as a writer on the stage as I'm presenting the material so that you treat the portrait of the um the other characters either with sort of a grain of salt there's a there's a, a doubt put in the audience's mind as to my veracity and uh you know you're constantly reminded that this this is a portrait of this person as seen through the playwright and then through this group of actors who are performing them and because the actors are constantly transforming in and out of different characters and actually sometimes we'll have characters performed by different actors in this play right. um, that's a way of reminding the audience that this is this we're in an artificial realm where we are treating reality it's true these are events that did happen and these are characters who exist but the 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 telling of the story is a uh, is it's a uh, it's crafted, um, and I think in a way in the theater we remind people more of that than we do in film because the a film frame really you kind of forget about it at a certain point, um, and in the theater I think we're we are remind constantly reminding people of that artificial frame. Um, I mean, in my in this upcoming play, I'm a character. My husband's a character. My kids are characters. My parents are characters, and and so we're really given a close examination of the very person and her entire family context right. that frames her perspective. Um, and it's funny because I didn't do that at the outset with my plays. Actually, the first play I ever wrote, which is a really terrible um, friend show <laughs> that I toured across Canada, um, uh, called Play, was actually just a friend of mine and I are basically trying to create a play together. And so I, I, I told people at the time that I was doing that because I had the intention to write more like social documentaries in the future. And I thought that I needed to treat myself. I needed to look at myself very carefully before I set out to portray other people and then since then I've I've written plays where really I took myself completely out of the picture because I was trying to maintain a more of a neutrality I guess uh, and allow the audience just to get a direct contact with the people that I interviewed but of course they never would because I'm the person that interviewed them and I I chose the the bits that would be presented and my frame was always there and now I've come back to a more okay I I have to make sure that I am that I'm making, I'm exposing myself uh, at the same time as looking at other people. So it's, this is a constant dialogue I'm having through my playmaking. Um, you know, what is the relationship between me and the, the people that I'm examining? At the end of the day, it is a conversation. Um, and, you know, I'm asking that question, not just for ethical reasons, but also for, you know, a, it's a dramaturgical question is how do I bring how do I allow this material to be more personal and more accessible to the audience, given that a lot of the topics I'm tackling are very um, challenging um, and have a lot of, like, the, there's a lot of density of information in them. 
Yeah, I think there's, I, I mean, I hear, you know, even, even in wanting to say that, I mean, that all sounds great and true, uh, including, you know, that we've all done that fringe show that wasn't quite so good. Um, but <laughs> the, uh, that, that to be candid about our subjectivity, and I don't even think it's to admit as a fault, right? I think that there's a weird... No, no, not a fault. And yeah. that's, it's just a fact. It's like, you know, I, this is my lens on the world. Absolutely. And, and that that candidness of, of you as a, as a speaker is, is important and that it's, and, and what I love about when it's revealed, not necessarily in a, or in, in many different ways, but when it's revealed that, that it allows me to then also be subjective as an audience member. Uh, and and let me go like oh that's not how i understand that myth but let me think about how they understood it and and that encouragement is the thing that i'm actually interested in in making these shows about like how do you make a show about systems and how do you make a show about like what are the oppressions and responses these or you know in the past how do you make a show about scientific revolutions through history like with a bunch of people who don't know anything about science um, and that's and that and that was really about like look we will we 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 are not experts and we don't apologize for that like we're not we're not sorry that we weren't scientists no. and I've and much more that way Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that that, you know, that question of what is the journalism, because I've, I've seen verbatim stuff that doesn't do that, yeah. that I've, I've responded so intensely against because I'm like, oh, that's so clearly from a point of view and yet is universalizing the statements. Yes, making it seem authoritative. Yeah, or that the, their authority is based on something more absolute than just their their own responses to material yes yes i i it was one of the one of the goals of uh, including my kids in the research um for my current play was to kind of allow us that naive um and just really the, 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 the simple questions to come out um, in the face of, of a complexity, you know, where we all just uh, cut ourselves some slack. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and admit that actually it, it might be helpful to, to unlock the, the complexity, to see it from a from a less uh, perspective that has less baggage and less fear, frankly, of being revealed as not knowing. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then what it ended up exposing actually was the kind of what terrible parents and teachers we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that may be your judgment on what it is. <laughs> like, I, I'm not even joking. It was like I, I just visited a reading like two weeks ago in Toronto where I kind of heard some of this material for the first time like at a, at a distance. Mm -hmm. uh, I was like, wow, what the hell am I doing in terms of guiding these 
these young minds through this universe. Like I'm bringing so much of my own fear and anxiety uh, hmm. into the into the space. No wonder our education systems are broken, honestly. Well, and the you know the Freudians among our listening public will 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 tell you that you know parents have long been bringing the their anxieties into into the <laughs> lives of their children. This is certainly not this is certainly not a new thought when it but when it hits you on a personal yeah, level. Yeah, no, absolutely. When you actually see it, you're just like, "Oh my god, how have I not seen this?" Like it, it's just incredible how how blind we are to our own behavior and I think again mm-hmm. getting to why you know we work in the theater is is it's it's really we're saying look, we we constantly need uh, these these moments of reflection to to realign uh, and to see to see more clearly. It's just it's not enough just to kind of move forward in your life. We need moments of personal and social uh, reflection. It's it's like a therapy. It's a tonic, or it's it's like for some people they go to the spa to realign. You know what I mean? But like mm-hmm. it's uh, it it's just what are we doing? what are we moving towards what what's the point of all this um it's 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 that's why we need to do it uh i i wish in a way we could be more clear in terms of the the amazing role that theater could play in our lives in whatever however it's presented as a walking tour as a straight up play as a whatever it is that it's a check in it's um it's a very necessary check-in. I think that that's a great place to um, to uh, leave off there, Jacob, unless yeah. you have something. No. Because uh, I certainly want to reflect on that a little bit. But I did want to also say that Philip Larkin has a poem, the first line of which is, they fuck you up, your mom and dad. <laughs> Which somebody sent to me when I found out I was pregnant with my first kid. So yeah. that's a pretty intense way to start thinking about your your family. <laughs> hey, congratulations! You're gonna fuck someone up. Yeah. As long as we can have a sense of humor about it and apologize, uh, and uh, and ideally a, a social network that pays for therapy. <laughs> that too <laughs> um so for those of us uh those of you who are with us this you've been listening to the sws podcast with jacob zimmer and adrian wong and our guest annabelle sutar we've got uh, show notes that'll be posted at uh, spiderwebshow.ca if you follow the links through the experiments to the podcasts just keep following them you'll get to this episode 11 show notes, but you can also find them. You can find them at uh, smallwoodandshoe.org slash podcast. And, and there we are also on, on the iTunes or various other web catching things. And the show notes are usually contained are contained in the notes to that. Uh, but yeah, smallwoodandshoe.org slash podcast is the, is the home for this on my servers. Thank you so much, Annabelle, for joining us this morning. It's a pleasure. Thanks for the dialogue, you guys. I really enjoyed it. Well, you get to uh, relive it because it'll be uh, out. <laughs> All right. Thank you, <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Have Thanks a great so day. Thanks so much. And, and best of luck with your show. Uh, oh.
thanks. I have to go prop shopping now. Okay. <laughs> Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. Okay. Uh, about it. Yeah. Bye. Great. Bye. Bye. Bye.